Hello, everyone. This is Scott Livingston, and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm fortunate today to be speaking with Matt Nickel. Matt is a veteran strength conditioning coach with over 20 years of field experience. He's worked with teams in the NHL, NFL, CFL, and the KHL, and privately with athletes virtually every professional Olympic sport imaginable. He is also the creator of BioSteel Sports Nutrition. He is fresh off a full summer campaign of training hockey players, many of whom play in the National Hockey League. I've invited Matt on to leave your mark because he quietly and confidently leads by example in an industry that he loves. He is a passionate professional whose dedication to the athletes he trains is unrivaled. It is this dedication to craft and his clients, which has fostered their loyalty and in turn the mark he leaves upon them. Welcome, Matt. Oh, thanks, Scott. Thanks for being here, buddy. Uh, I hope you're not too fatigued from a big summer of training the boys. <laughs> well, you know, I know you, you, you lived it for so many years, you know, it's a, it's mixed emotions, you know, it's a, I love it. It's awesome. Every day is a rush, but I'll, I'll tell you, I'll be, I'll be cheering louder than anybody when these guys go back on the ice. <laughs> that means they're not in my gym. So, you know. <laughs> so you, you must, you, you know exactly how it is. Oh yeah. It must get sort of weird though. After everybody leaves, how quiet it is. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because I think like at the start of every summer, I'm excited and you read this, there's this kind of midway point where I hate everybody and I'm grouchy and everyone's bothering me. And then we get at the end of the summer. It's kind of exciting. Cause you know, then now it's, uh, you know, guys start saying their goodbyes. It's a little emotional. And I know that next week it's going to feel incredibly empty in the room. And there's this, I, I think, you know, you, I know, I know that you know it, but I felt like when, when, when I worked in, in the league, like for a team, that was the one thing that I missed the most when I got out of it was that feeling on game day, that energy, the energy that's in the room that you just can't, yeah, I, I haven't found a way to replicate that with anything else I do. So it's that energy in my gym that kind of just disappears next week that I'll miss. I'll miss that for sure. Yeah, I think uh, there's something about uh, guys and camaraderie and being in a room with a bunch of guys that you bond with and care about and, and sort of all the energy that comes out of that, good and bad at times, that uh, that you miss when it's not there for sure. If we segue back a little bit in your life, what you you were a football player. What was your favorite football team growing up? Wow. Uh, you know what? I used to, uh, as a kid, I used to cheer for the, the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Ah. Uh, they're the closest local team uh, to me. Uh, and uh, my my uncle was a, a semi-pro football player and a guy that I always kind of admired and looked up to. And he sort of introduced me, took me down to my first Hamilton Tiger Cats game when I was a kid. And that was sort of my, my team. And I think that, you know, if there's any of your listeners that are, you know, I'm sure there are lots of American listeners that... Uh, it's a, it's a legit league, and your 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 good buddy and mine, Lauren Goldenberg, would take any opportunity <laughs> has to let everybody know that it's every bit as good or better than the NFL. But yeah, I was uh, probably a tie cap fan growing up. He's probably going to comment on that when he listens. Well, I know, he's, yeah, that's <laughs> so why you plugged it in there. <laughs> do you remember the first time you went to a football game? Do you remember that I moment? Do, yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I used to, I, I grew up in uh, you know in Waterloo, Ontario, so we'd, I'd go to Laurier games and, and University of Waterloo games and the odd University of Guelph games. So. You know, I, I love football kind of right from, right from day one. But I, yeah, I do remember my first Tiger Cats game for sure. That's awesome. Um, I saw that your dad and mom were both elementary school teachers. How did that, uh, growing up with teachers, sort of influence you? Or did it make you more of a, a, a better student? Or did you actually have an aversion to being a student because of, because of that in some sense? That's a good question. I think, you know what, I, I, always, really, I always really enjoyed school. Um, and you know, I'm sure a lot of that had to do with them and, 
I, I read a lot at a young age, and I'm sure a lot of that had to do with them. Um, they were very different. They're, you know, they're very different people, and they were very different styles of teachers. My mom was a, a kindergarten teacher and the kind of person that I would, you know, I'd get stopped randomly on the street on, on a very regular basis for, by people who would tell me that, you know, I had your mom as my kindergarten teacher and how much I love her and she's the greatest and she was a really sweet, gentle soul. And my dad was a grade eight teacher and a, a really stern disciplinarian. So they're mm. very two, two completely different people, two completely different teaching styles. I think both were good. Both were good for me. Mm. I needed a little bit of both in my life. So I, um, I think, you know, the, I, I think it helped me for more than hurt me for sure. And uh, we, uh, having two parents as teachers, and living, I was always walking distance from my from my school, so uh, that was the part that hurt me. I could never miss a day of school. I was not allowed to be. There was no such thing as a snow day, or uh, yeah, I was I was the the kid that was you know in class when no one else was there because there was no chance I couldn't go to school. So you didn't yeah, walk the ten me. miles to school every day. That you no, I wish I, I wish it was ten miles because then I would have maybe not had to go. But it, unfortunately, <laughs> five hundred meters, so I had no excuse. I can't, yeah. <laughs> there is no such thing as a snow day. <laughs> no, not when your parents are teachers. So yeah. So you had an older brother. What? Um, why was he such a, a positive influence on you? He's. I mean, for he's a he's a great guy, and I'm sure everybody thinks their brother's a great guy, but um, but mine really was. And uh, he was. He's just sort of. Um, he's this incredibly positive person. Reminds me a lot of my mom, and he. I, I've honestly. I'd be hard pressed to, I'd really have to think if I've ever heard him say a bad word about somebody else. He's a, he's a much better person than I am. He's a, he's a, he's a, a very, very, very good person. He's a Catholic uh, educator and, and, and stays true to those principles for sure. And, but the thing I think I remember, I don't know when he started doing this, but I can remember being probably as young as grade three and my brother would get up in the morning and go for runs. You know, he would get up in the morning uh, I remember he decided he wanted to make the track and field team. So he would get up and go for, you know, this way, this little two K route around our neighborhood. He would go every morning and go for a run, you know, and my brother who, you know, decided that he wanted to make the basketball team and, you know, we're not blessed either of us with a ton of great, you know, skill genetically. And, uh, you know, he, I think basketball wasn't his calling, but I remember him going down and shooting, shooting like foul shots at the school every day. Uh, he never ended up making the basketball team in high school, but he did win the the county championship for free throw shootings. So he used to be a Knights of Columbus three free throw shooting contest, and he beat everybody. You know, and it was just sort of that that that's his mindset, that's his personality. This day, he's a, he's a print elementary school principal. He's got two kids, but you know, he's out. You know, every morning he's up at probably four thirty in the morning, works out for an hour, or goes for you know just a little casual fifteen twenty k run just for fun. I mean, th- things that I. I can't bring myself to do, but he's an inspiration to me that way. So. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. So track and field is kind of a thematic for you guys in some sort. Did you do track in, in high school as well? Yeah, I, did. I mean, I always, I always did it because again, you know, I wanted to be like my older brother and I wasn't, mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't great at it like he was. Uh, but then by the time I got to high school, I was good at shot put. So I continued doing that, but I, I would also train uh, with the sprinters to get better at, you know, for football. So I was never, I never had any delusions of being, you know, as successful as a sprinter. And I knew exactly kind of where I stood in the big picture, but I found that training with those guys, training with fast people made me, made me faster. So I did that. How old were you when you first started playing football? Uh, 14, 14. Uh, 13, 13, I guess I started, I started going to football camps when I was 13 years old. And then it was 13 at the start of grade nine. And did you fall in love with it? Yeah, I mean, it was the one. I mean, I've I've played just about everything except hockey, and uh, I like you know I played basketball 
a lot. I played all through high school and even, you know, practiced a little bit with our varsity team university, but I liked a lot of things, but football was really my, my, you know, my real true love. I just, I just loved it. What did you fall in love with about the sport? You know, that's a great question. You know what, if I have to think back, I think I was, you know, I, I, I love sports and I tried really hard, but I was never really great at any of the ones that I did. You know, I tried, I tried to play hockey. I was a terrible skater. All my friends were good. Mm-hmm. And I found that frustrating. I, I played a lot of basketball and I was, you know, okay for, you know, for who I was and the gifts that I had, but I was never, you know, I was never the best at that. And uh, all these different sports, I even believe it or not, was a member of the row swim club that, which was a pretty big deal back in the day. And, uh, I did a lot of different things, but it was when I, I remember the first time I ever played football and there was a couple of, uh, I'll still remember there's a couple of really big kids and they were sort of, you know, scary guys and guys are, you know, maybe were kind of, you know, hadn't, hadn't bullied me necessarily, but they were that type of a personality, big, scary guys that all the other kids in town were afraid of. And we got on the football field and I remember just one of the first times not really knowing what I was doing, but putting one of those guys on his ass and all of a sudden, you know, everyone's hooting and hollering and cheering and you thought, wow, okay, okay, I'm maybe I'm actually good at this, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I probably would be better if there was, uh, you know, I guess in retrospect, if you had gifts other than being good at hitting people in the head with your head, there's probably, <laughs> but that was my, that was my, that was my, the thing I was good at. So that's kind of, you know, I, I guess like anyone else, you gravitate towards sports or areas of life where you have success. So, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I had the most success with that and I, and I liked it and I loved you know, I, I don't know. The, I guess any sport has that that sort of thrill. But there's, I, if anyone's played it, you know, there's something a little different about football like that. There's that, you know. I guess part part of it is the danger. It's a it's a it's a super high intensity game, and there, you know, there's a lot of physical contact. It's super high speed, and that rush that 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 I would get in a football game, I've, I've mm-hmm. yet to find a way to replicate that. When you look back at the, um, you know, the sport of track and field and the sport of football are, they have sort of integrated uh, elements to them in the sense that there's speed and power and all that stuff. But one is very in, highly individualized and the other one's highly team oriented. Uh, when you look back at that, did, did you take something away from both of those in, in from, from an individual uh, performance perspective and a team performance perspective as you grew older? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, I mean, again, my watching my older brother go through it and then he was a, a pretty accomplished track athlete and he, you know, it's an individual sport, but there is, there's a, there's a team element, you know, and I know that he, you know, he's still got a group of friends that he's really close with that, you know, they were, they, you know, were team members on the track and field team 30 plus years ago and they're still tight. So there is obviously anyone who's in track and field knows that there's a team element to it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But again, like you said, when it's, when it's race time or when it's competition time, you're, you're in there by yourself and there's, there's obviously, you know, there's some great benefits or life metaphors you could draw from that. Uh, but I, I really, um, I think I always gravitated more towards team sports. I loved being a part of the, t- a part of the team. And it's, I, I think, you know, I, again, I don't know if it's my, my, the lack of high end skill that I had or, or just my personality type, but I loved, I always loved playing defense, whether it was in basketball or, or, you know, I played foot, you know, in football, I played defense. That was sort of my thing. I, I loved being that dependable guy that was always going to get his job done and, and keep, you know, keep the game alive while the stars of the team could go and score the touchdown or go and score the basket. I, I kind of relished my role and I, I liked that. Mm. Be honest. You liked hurting people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I think you, you know, this, it's a sort of, as you, you know, as you, as you move up the, 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 the progression of, of, of any sport, but especially in football, the, my, my life, it's this, there's this, 
balance between your level of skill and your size so that, you know, if, if you're not skilled enough to play one position, they just bump you down to the fatter position, you know? So I remember being like trying to be a linebacker, an outside linebacker and wasn't quite good enough. So then I became an inside linebacker and wasn't quite good enough. So then you became a, a defensive end and then finally a defensive tackle as your, <laughs> your level of skill just diminishes, then your size increases and they find a new spot for you. There must be another variation of the Peter principle on that one. I think yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, when you, when did you discover in your process of going into football, the weightlifting and strength training, was it sort of immediate or was it something that you sort of, uh, sort of had to adapt into when you got into your teen, later teens? Yeah, I think, well, I remember going to a football camp, uh, when I was, you know, 13 years old. And they gave you a little report card at the end of this. And the, and the guy made a comment in there to, to get huge. And I had no clue. What that, I had no clue what that meant. All the other kids that were there had, were playing organized football. And I had never, I had actually never played football before I was going to learn how to play. So all those other kids were doing weightlifting. I remember, and the following year I went to the university of Michigan football camp. And I remember, you know, being in, in a group with other kids, my age and them asking, how much did you bench and how much did you just clean? And I had no clue what they were talking about. It was really embarrassing. Uh, so I think probably I became aware of it probably as, you know, as a 14 year old. Um, and, you know, thankfully I went to a high school for a couple of years where we had, uh, we actually had a powerlifting club in the high school. Mm. Uh, so for at least for two years in my high school, I had a good foundation with coaches that were able to help and coach. So I'd say by the time I was, by the time I was at least, you know, 15 years old, I was regularly weight training for sure. Mm. So you went to University of McGill, you played football there, obviously, I would assume that you were recruited to play football at McGill? Yes. Yeah. So when you got to McGill and you sort of arrived at your first training camp, tell me about how intimidating that was for you. I'll tell you, you know, it's funny, I'll tell the, I've told this story to a few of my friends, but uh, there was a guy, who, we ended up, you know, four years later ended up being roommates, but uh, his name was Dan Crefo and he, uh, his brother was, a you know, an outstanding CFL player for a long time. And he actually, you know, he, he was, uh, you know, recruited, played in the CFL for a little bit and coached in the CFL. But I remember walking onto the field my first day and, and the, the first, I, I didn't know this at the time, but the first day of training camp, there was a tradition. The offensive line coach would bring in a box of donuts for all the offensive linemen, it was kind of a, you know, a bit of a, bit of a joke and, you know, encouraging these guys to be bigger and fatter, but Dan was the last guy to get the box that had gone around to all the other guys. But again, I didn't know that I just walked out in the field. So Dan was about six foot five and about 315, 320 pounds. He benched about 435, 440 pounds at the time. So I walked out in the field and I saw this guy with a donut in his hand in this empty box of donuts. And I thought, Oh my God, it's eight o'clock in the morning before our first day of two days in this this guy just ate an entire box of donuts. I thought, what have I, what have I gotten myself into here? But yeah, that was, that was my first, my first impression of university football. I thought, man, I really need to gain a lot of weight, but um, <laughs> no, I think it was, you know what? I think like any, you know, I'm from a smaller town and going to, and, and, and at that time they had a very, very good team. We were always ranked top 10 in the country and uh, they had a lot of really, you know, big, strong guys. We had guys that, were squatting over 600 and guys that were benching 500 and you know it was uh it was a real eye-opener you know and I think that it was you know it, it you kind of have a standard set for yourself I remember you know going to the YMCA in Kitchener and there was a guy that could bench 225 and I thought oh my god you know if I could if I work really hard maybe someday I could do that that would be like the epitome of what I could do and then you get you know you get to school and you see guys doing that for 25 reps and you realize oh you know maybe the bar is a little higher maybe I need to really step up so 
was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an eye opener and was a little intimidating. That's for sure. What was your, your most difficult moment, uh, as a college football player and your most, uh, inspiring moment? Ooh. Um, I think the most difficult moment was my first year. I, I literally did not step on the field the entire year, mm. not for one play. Uh, and I think that that was a bitter pill to swallow. And I, th- I think it was a good thing to be, you know, six hours away from home and not, you know, in front of everybody. And I think that was, it was pretty standard. We had a really, we had a really strong team and, um, you know, I, you know, I, I needed to be better and I, but it, so it was an eye opener for me. It was a tough pill to swallow though, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, rewarding. We had, I, I, oof, that's tough. We had a lot of really great moments. We had some really, some pretty, uh, pretty awesome wins over Concordia University. I'd have to tell the start. <laughs> yeah, we had, you know, I think probably this is, you know what I have to think about, but that's probably the, if I have to name one, it would be this is that we were, we were down by four points, uh, with, I believe it was seven or 10 seconds left. Seven. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to go with seven sounds better, but they were down by four in the shrine bowl at Concordia in front of, in front of your, your home crowd there. We had the places packed and down, down by four points, seven seconds left. Uh, we had the ball in our three yard line and, uh, and we won the game. Hail Mary. Well, it's, it's a bigger story than that for the listeners because I was a part of it and you guys were down yep. by, I think, 21 points Yes, at, uh, at, I think, the end of the third quarter. And you, <laughs> you somehow scored all these points, including the final touchdown. And, you know, and you'll remember, that, so that was the year of the NHL lockout. So we were actually, all these games were on TSN, mm-hmm. which was a huge deal, you know, the national, national coverage for the game. And I remember it was... Uh, your uh, your your cornerback that was drafted by the San Diego Chargers. Yeah, name escapes me right now. Uh, Mark Montroy. Mark Montroy. So it was our shortest, slowest receiver that caught that you know caught that pass. Mark Montroy was in the opposite corner of the field, and it was this like you know it was this incredible like I, I wish you could you know some sort of time last told you to watch this Jason Sedillis in a foot race with Mark Montroy. In Mark's defense, he was coming from the complete opposite side of the field, but and and, and you know, his knee may have been down at the one, let's be honest, but uh, you know what? It doesn't matter now. We got the win. So that uh, was, that was, that, but anyway, that taught me a lesson. Like you said, you know, down by 21 points, you know, and you, you guys had a strong team. I think that uh, it taught me a lesson in life that as long as, as long as it's mathematically possible, you know, there's time left, there's time on the clock. It's mathematically possible to win that you always have a chance. And that, that, that's that was you know my my second year of university that stuck with me in my mind forever and I, th- I sort of carried that through in sport that even you know there were, there were other games we were down by similar odds and thought you know what no I remember the time that you know everyone thought the game was over at halftime we came back and won in dramatic fashion so that can happen again that sort of stuck with me yeah well it's interesting actually that year that Concordia football team lost I think three out of the last four games of the year because I think the team was five and zero or something midseason. They lost three out of the last four games of the year um, in the exact same manner. They lost. They they were up by like twenty one points and lost the game. So I remember that season. It was quite devastating. But anyways, I I digress. Sorry, sorry to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, question. For for multitasking, what I was doing during that game was not only being a therapist, but uh, while I didn't do the therapy at that time that year with the team, I was running the music in the stands. I would DJ. <laughs> Come on. So, yeah. So in between plays, when the tunes came on, I was the guy running that. Wow. <laughs> anyway. 
Um, so you go on and you finish uh, university at McGill and you get out into the world and start, uh, you know, working and stuff. And how does the opportunity to work with the Toronto Maple Leafs actually happen for you? I, I don't, to this day, I don't, I'm sure it was a combination of things. I don't know exactly what I know that, uh, a couple of the players on the team had put my name forward, uh, to management. I, you know, I, would only been working with a handful of hockey players at that time. I had work, was working with a lot of football players, but only, only a few hockey players. And, uh, I, you know, I, I went back to school. I did my master's. I, I just finished that. And I remember I was actually planning on doing, going on a trip. So the year before I had gone, uh, my brother was living in China and teaching there. And I, you know, I went and spent a month traveling there, seeing him. Uh, and I was trying to think about what I would do now this fall. Was, is I gonna, was I going to go on a trip? Was, was, you know, would I sign up for some courses or seminars? And I got a call completely out of the blue. I didn't apply for the job. So it really kind of came out of left field and took me by surprise. And I was asked to come in for an interview and, uh, I didn't really know what it was in regards to, but I figured I better put on a, a blazer and a tie. And I went in and uh, I had three interviews over the course of, you know, an hour and a half or two hours. And, you know, within 24 hours, I was hired as the strength coach. So it was, it was kind of a whirlwind, that's for sure. Wow, that's kind of wild. Yeah. <clears throat> Go, you know, when, when you reflect back on that, being a guy who didn't play hockey, but really had an affinity for football and you started working with hockey players, what was... What was the challenge for you when you started working with hockey players versus sort of the the ba- background that you had sort of worked in in football and and changing sort of your approach or did you change your approach? What what was your 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 the way you started looking at the ho- game of hockey? Well, the, I originally when I had first moved to Toronto, I started working at a place that was uh, you would remember the high performance specialist HPS, and it was mm-hmm. I, I remember I went there and. and took my resume and walked in the door because on the, on the logo out front, it said the official training center of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I thought, okay, well, I live in Toronto. I want to train athletes. This would be a great place. And uh, I didn't get a job. Um, and I offered to, to volunteer and, and I w- that offer was declined. I ended up, but uh, eventually they, uh, had a, a guy, uh, kind of no show on a Saturday and called me in a panic and asked if I would be still interested in coming in and volunteering. So I started being the weekend and the evening guy, but, None of those, they weren't my, I was more, more or less supervising the gym. They weren't my customers. But uh, when I started, I'll have to always give credit to one person. That was Steve Steos, who's now uh, one of the GMs of Hockey Canada. He's the, he's the GM of the Hamilton Bulldogs in the OHL as well. He was my very first NHL client. And I remember he, he got my number somehow and he called me up and asked if he could meet with me and said he wanted to train. And I, I actually turned him down at first, not, you know, because I was trying to be exclusive because I was intimidated. And I said, I was honest. I said, listen, I don't, I don't train hockey players. I train football players. I like hockey, but I don't like them as a fan, but I don't know how to train a hockey player. So I think you should probably go find someone that, you know, is an expert. And, uh, his comment to me was, well, I've been training like a hockey player for my whole life and it's not really working out for me so well. So maybe I should try something new. <laughs> and he actually had two, uh, one of, you know, two of his cousins, one of his cousins, one of the greatest, you know, football players ever to come out of Canada. He had two cousins, you know, two cousins that were playing in the CFL. And he said, well, I know what they do and they're always fast and strong and powerful. So maybe I'll try it. So I, to answer your question, I I didn't, I I didn't modify it much at first because I didn't really know how to modify it. I I just kind of used my judgment and figured, okay, well, they, you know, they need a little bit more, you know, you know, a little bit more aerobic work than my football players might, or a little longer, you know, longer duration work periods in our conditioning. 
you know, then maybe they need, you know, a little bit more multi direction work or lateral work. I tried, I started reading books, you know, I, I, you know, attended, you know, courses and conferences, one that you were involved with at, uh, at Concordia. I read anything, you know, you know, by you, by Lauren, by Peter Twist, anybody just, just, you know, try to a crash course on how does a hockey player train as, you know, but it's at first, more or less, I trained my hockey players like football players, you know, not not because I thought it was the better way to do it because I didn't know what way to do it. So I just mm-hmm. did what I knew, you know, and I think that a lot of that was good. Some of it wasn't so good. And some of those parts I've, you know, weeded out over the years. But uh, yeah, I would say that more or less I trained them like football players. When you when you look at the two, the two being, so to speak, the the football player and the hockey player, what at this point in your career, when you uh, look at things, how do you differentiate the two? Uh, as as uh, training animals, so to speak. Yeah, well, you and you know this as well or better than most. That that the, the cool thing about training football players is that a three hundred and fifty pound lineman and a one hundred and seventy five pound kicker are both football players. <laughs> you know, but they need they have radically different needs. So I think when I say I train them like football players, I wouldn't say that I was I wasn't you know oblivious to the need for some customization or individualization in in planning and I, and in my football group I had offensive and defensive linemen I had receivers I had running backs I had I had a, I had a, a, you know one of the best kick I had the I had the best kicker at least in the Canadian Football League so I had uh, I had some you know some knowledge about how to customize programs for needs but again just not not specifically for hockey uh, I think with 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 my hockey players early on, uh, training them just like football players worked out, worked out fine. As I went further along, I, I kind of realized that a lot of these guys, you know, as you start to get more clients, they didn't have the same background. You know, when I got, when I got a, typically speaking, if I, if I had a football player as a client, he's probably gone through at least four, sometimes as many as eight years of structured strength and conditioning. They know how to clean, they know how to squat, they know how to deadlift and bench and blah, 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 fill in the blanks. They've had someone coach them on sprint technique. A lot of the hockey players, when they would show up, they had done some circuits. You know, they had probably done some kind of strength training something, but but not necessarily very structured. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were usually pretty fit. And they were usually hardworking, but a lot of them, you know, really needed just basic, basic, basic technical work. Mm-hmm. You know, so that would be that would have been the biggest difference at that point. You know, and this is again, like you know, you you'd ask, you know what was the difference at that point? That was the difference at that point. I really didn't understand yet, you know, about work to rest ratios and, you know, injury, injury issues that you know, present in hockey a little different than football and how you can maybe at least make efforts to avoid some of those things. What was the scariest or most difficult part of day one with the, the Toronto Maple Leafs? I, I just, you know what, it was, I, I talk about it now and I, I'm not, I'm not shy to talk about it. In fact, in some ways I'm proud of it but I wasn't at the time I was scared shitless, excuse me, but that these guys were going to find out that I wasn't a hockey player and I never played hockey and I, that would be it. I'd be done. I wouldn't have any credibility and nobody would care about anything I had to say. Uh, I was genuinely afraid of that. Um, I just, just that I really didn't know. I, not only was it like my first job with an NHL hockey team, it was my first team job. You know, I, I had, you know, I had volunteered to, you know, I helped, uh, I did, you know, I did some work with the York University hockey team. I'd, you know, done uh, high school football teams, but the, most of my strength and conditioning work had been, you know, privately mm-hmm. and it's a completely different animal. So, um, yeah, it was just, you know, you know, new, like 
new, new kid at a new school, no friends, don't know anybody. You know, I'm sure all the same things that anyone goes through in a, in a brand new job. And, uh, it was pretty intimidating. And I, I, you know, I lucked out, we had a, a fantastic group of guys that, and, uh, you know, there's, there were some challenging personalities, but for the most part, you know, the guys, the guys were fantastic and eased into it. And that, that lack of hockey experience, I think it turned out to be a benefit, not a detriment, which mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that at the time. So I was pretty scared about that at the time. Elaborate on that. Why, why do you think it was? Well, I think, you know what, it would be, it's harder for me sometimes now with football players because I have a, I have an emotional attachment to the things that I did when I played. I was, I was very, very passionate about my training for football. I was always, you know, reading and researching and talking to people. And I, and I, I prided myself on my work ethic in the gym. So there's a part of me that probably doesn't want to believe that the things I did weren't good. I want to believe that the type of training I did was good and the right way to do it. You know, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. sometimes when I, I still work with some football players now, but it's sometimes a little more challenging because I have to realize, Hey, you know what? Things aren't the same as they were 20 years ago. I think the training styles have changed, you know, uh, the way these guys have, play has changed and it's, and it's so much better than what I did, you know, and I have to accept that the things that I did, you know, as, as much as I'd like to, you know, romanticize about, how great I was in the gym or this, that, that things have progressed. And I, maybe I wasn't that great. Maybe the things I did really weren't the best way to do them. So, but with hockey, I had none of that. I didn't care. I had no emotional attachment to the style of training. So if, if I was training one way and uh, we went to play Montreal and I ran into you in the hallway and you told me, Hey, this exercise is actually way better. I tried the one you're doing. This one's better. I would just drop it right out of the program tomorrow and try the new one. I didn't care. I had no attachment to anything. So mm -hmm. I think that actually made, uh, I think that actually, and it was a benefit that way. And also there was no, you know, it, it was, it allowed me to go into a room with all these superstar players with no ego or attitude, because I know I'm worse than everybody. I don't have any notion that back when I played, I was as good as this guy or that guy. There was none of that at all. It was like, okay. I, I and I, I, the advice I was giving them wasn't about hockey. Now it wasn't, it would say, I would be able to say, Hey, listen, I have no idea what you should or shouldn't do on the ice. I honestly don't know, but I know that you need to improve this quality in the gym. I know that, mm. you know, I know that your hip is tight or I know that your, you know, your back is weak or your, you know, your, your posture sucks or whatever the case is. And it didn't come from a place of judgment. Sometimes I think with, you know, with elite athletes, when you have a coach that used to play, but at a minor league level and he gives advice to a player about something technical on the ice, the pushback is always, wow, ah, but uh, you know, who's that guy? That guy couldn't play in the league. Now he's telling me how to play. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, that's something I would hear from players, but there was none of that with me. They knew that they knew I couldn't play at all. So I mean, my advice was strictly limited to how, how to be a better athlete. And I think they, for whatever reason, they accepted that a little easier. Mm -hmm. Who, who were, or what was some of your, you know, key influencing factors in that role that helped you grow as a, a professional while you were with uh, the team? I had a lot of, uh, I mean, a lot of good advice going into it from a lot of people. Um, Charlie Francis at the time was a guy, a guy that I spent a lot of time with, uh, who I, you know, I think had a small role in me even getting the job. He had recommended me to a couple people. Um, he gave, you know, he gave me some great advice. I remember talking to him, you know, uh, the week that I got the job and saying, Oh my God, what am I going to do? I got, you know, there's 25 guys at that time, you know, on the roster, not to mention, you know, the, the minor league team or whatever. And how am I going to get all these guys to buy in? And I remember him telling me that, Hey, don't worry. He said, you know, th these hockey players are so messed up. If you only have one guy that listens to you, you'll be busy all year with that one guy. So that was, <laughs> that was pretty good advice. And, uh, 
my, my, when I did my master's at York, my primary advisor was Tudor Bompa. And so I spent, mm-hmm. you know, a year with him. So obviously when I got that job, uh, I remember we sat down, you know, one of the, one of the, he gave me some really helpful advice uh, about, you know, just how to conduct myself around the guys and remember, you know, telling me just to, you know, kind of less is more and try not to, to set the bar too high and don't enforce rules that aren't that, you know, don't, you know, put rules in place that you're not willing to enforce. Those are some really positive things. One of the negative things I still laugh about now is we sat down and spent uh, an, half a day working on our annual plan. You know, I, so I could have told you the day before training camp exactly what we were going to do on April the 14th, uh, how many sets and reps, what percentage of our max. And that, that, thing, that thing went out the window about five minutes into my, my first day at work. So, um, yeah, lots of stuff. I mean, and it was funny. There was, there's that big uh, conference in Toronto every year at that time, the fitness conference, and Paul Check happened to be in town. Uh, right. I just, you know, gotten the job just before that. And I, you know, he came into the room and we kind of went through some ideas and, you know, it was, there was a lot of, it was, I was really lucky. I had some unbelievable mentors at the time that were there that I could lean on. Cause I was, I was definitely pretty nervous. Mm-hmm. What were some of your big frustrations working in that job? Uh, you know, you said, you said, I don't even know if you remember this, but you, you said, you said something to me once and this was, this was bang on. It stuck with me forever. But I remember you said it's as sometimes as a strength coach in a team environment, specifically in the NHL, you're like this computer that's full of these amazing software programs, but people just want to surf the internet and send emails, you know, like, (laughs) and you feel like there's so many different ways that you could help and, and, but they just, you know, they're, they're not so interested in, in, in accessing all these amazing programs that they already have. They're already loaded in the computer. You already paid for it. They're right there. You just have to use them and they don't. So that, that was, that was a frustration for sure. Um, I think that's one of the, the motivations now in running my private business is I felt like I, I don't, I don't know at all. You know, I, I'm not an expert in very many things at all, but I, I know who some of those people are. So, you know, I, I always kind of wish that like, you know, I, you know, I, I didn't have any desires to be the general manager, the head coach, but you hope that, every once in a while they might seek your opinion on something because you, you, you're pretty sure that you might have something to offer. So mm-hmm. uh, I do, you know, and I worked with some, some coaches and general managers who were great about that and some that, that, you know, really weren't great about that at all. And so that, that was always a bit of a frustration, mm-hmm. just feeling like you, you want to give everything you have and offer everything you have. And sometimes it's, you know, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't asked or even acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's it. Just the tough, like I feel for any, any team strength and conditioning coach now, it's hard. I mean, you can have the best strength coach in the world. It's, you know, in most cases, it's you and 23 guys. I mean, it's, it's extremely hard. You know, even if you do a fantastic job, you're just, you're outnumbered every day. You're fighting an uphill battle, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, that was a frustration is sometimes realizing, especially when, you know, like I, I had the ability to network with somebody like you with so much experience and knowledge and all the mentors that I've already mentioned and, you know, you'd have conversations with all these guys and they would say, oh, you, you, you should be doing this. Or what about that? How come you don't do this with that guy? Or why don't you do this with that guy? And you realize it was it's almost like that ignorance is bliss idea where once you realize how many things are possible and how much you can really help people with proper training and proper therapy and proper nutrition. But you just you, you can't you know, it's just the scale is against you. You just can't. There's too many bodies. There's not enough time. That was that was the frustrating part for me. Just uh, just that challenge. You, like I, uh, were released from an organization. I'm just curious, you know, when you look I, back. I wasn't that. released. I was fired. I, 
Yeah, I said, tried to say it nicely. Well, I remember I, I walked into Glenn Sather's office and he leaned back and he had his arms up over his head and he was sitting back with a cigar in his mouth. And he said, Scott, I'm not going to fire you. I'm just not going to rehire you. <laughs> that was my moment with the Rangers. But uh, talk about that and, and what it what it felt like and what went, what did you, what did you deal with those feel how did you deal with those feelings when when it w- it was all said and done yeah i think you know it was a uh, it was a very challenging time it was certainly you know i had to eat, eat a eat a slice of humble pie i sort of i felt the frustrating thing for me i remember like i i had been there you know quite a while and the guy that you know pat quinn was the coach who hired me and at the time he was the the coach and the, the general manager of the team he was sort of the, the the sheriff and the only sheriff in town um and i i really really loved working for him i loved him i love working for him my only regret is that i didn't appreciate how great he was at the time he was my first boss so i had nothing to compare him to so i always knew he was great but i had no idea how great until you know until later on but uh I think my frustration was just that, that, you know, like, the, you know, and this is not, this is not about me. This is any, any good strength coach. And I know you were this way, but the, the number of, of hours that you spend that go unnoticed, you know, the amount of time you put in, uh, you know, when it, when it, when it, when a, when a coach of a team gets released <laughs> or fired, uh, you know, there's this, you know, the golden parachute and they, you know, they give them a brand new contract and then they, they let them go six months later. And, uh, you know, just some of the, I just, it was, uh, kind of the way it went down. I just, you know, that, that, that left a, a bad feeling in my stomach, you know, just sort of felt like that all the time and the effort and the extra work that it, that kind of went unappreciated. Um, you know, in retrospect, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because it, you know, I, I it would have been an easy job to stay in for a long time. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a good job. It was good paying. I liked it, but you know, um, you know, I think at that, at that time being fired from any job, I'm sure is that's the only time I'd been fired before. So that was a new experience for me, but especially when it was something that you had poured so much time into, I had made a lot of sacrifices in my life, my personal life, you know, the team always came first to the detriment of my, of my personal life many times, you know, and, and you know, you, cause you lived it too. Like, my first couple of years, I remember when, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be abnormal to put in a, a 14 hour day on a game day. That, that was kind of a normal day and three, four hours of sleep and get up and do it all over again with a smile on your face. So, um, it was, you know, I like, you know, I guess getting fired from any job is emotional. So it would have been all those same feelings as, as anyone else would have. Mm-hmm. And you took that energy and sort of how fast did you know you were just going to become you know, a, a personal consultant to, to players, like what was the transition for you? Did, did you have a period of time where you felt empty and wanted to try to find another job in the, in the business? Or did you just sort of say, F it, I'm going to, I'm going to forge this path on my own and go and set up a, a gym and do my thing. Yeah, no, you know, I, I, it was, I got, I got, I got fired on a Friday and I had some, I needed to be somewhere Monday. That was sort of my mindset. I mean, I, part of it was like, I, I never, I never had any aspirations of ever being the strength and conditioning coach for the Toronto Maple Leafs. It was never, it wasn't a job I applied for. It wasn't a job that I, I wanted to do. It was, it was, wasn't even on my radar. I just always wanted to be the best strength coach I could be and, and do a great job for the athletes that entrusted me with their, with their training. So I felt like, 
you know, it was obviously, it was, you know, a little bit, a little bit humiliating and, and, and frustrating and all those, you know, personal emotions. But once I got my ego out of the way, I, I realized, okay, well, I got to be on Monday. I got to be training. I got to be training people. So anyone that wants to train with me, I got to be somewhere on Monday. So I, I set up shop here and, and I think, you know, I did have, and I still do. I mean, there's always, you know, I, at the time I thought, okay, I, would I be, go back to being a, a team strength coach? Well, I mean, maybe at first for a little while, I didn't want to do that because I had my feelings hurt and I thought, you know, screw everybody. I'm just going to do my own thing. I think, but the, the real part of it was I, I made a decision back then that I still feel the same way now is that if I was going to be a, a team strength and conditioning coach again, it wouldn't be under those same circumstances. So I don't, I don't need to be, you know, the, the medical doctor or the therapist, but I know which ones are good, you know? So I think I'd like my input, you know, to be a, at, at the very least appreciated, if not, you know, if not used, right. I, I don't know, you know, there's lots of great uh, coaches out there. I know, you know, I know which ones are good and I hire them here. There's lots of great therapists. I don't need to be the therapist. I wouldn't know what to do, but I know which ones are good. So I think if there was an opportunity for a team that would, would, would allow me to have input on all those areas, then I was interested. Otherwise I was happy just to be my private guy here. Mm-hmm. And we run our private, the private business I run now, I really essentially, I'm still in the gym every day training because I love that. I'm always going to do that. But, in, you know, in I'm, I'm sort of the, the de facto general manager of my little organization here. We've got 30 NHL players. I wouldn't I, I, I can barely skate myself, but I hire NHL coaches to come and train the guys on the ice. Mm-hmm. I don't tell them what drills to run. Uh, that would be none of my business. That's, you know, their expertise far, you know, surpasses anything I have. But I can tell them. These are days that it might be good to go a little easier. These are days that might be good to go a little harder. Hey, what do you guys think about this drill? I think it's neat. What do you think? And they obviously retain the right to tell me, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Or, hey, yeah, we could do something like that. That's that's all I ever wanted. Mm-hmm. What's been the personal cost of being, um, you know, you're good at what you do. What's been the personal cost of being good at what you do? That's, yeah, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I think a lot of times you know, they're, they're putting, putting, putting the team or the athletes first before everything else in your life is, is cost, you know, it's cost relationships. It's cost friendships. It's probably cost uh, a lot of frustration or heartache from, you know, the family and the friends who did stick around through all that time. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of hobbies. <laughs> I don't, I got a, I got a pair, got a pair of golf clubs in my garage. that got about three inches of dust on them. I don't, I don't go fishing. I don't do, a lot of stuff that used to be, you know, for 10 or 11 months a year. Now, now it's only three or four, I guess. So it's a, it's, it's a little better than it used to be, but uh, yeah, there's, there's obviously that cost there. You know, you care, you know, like I know that you do, you and I have worked together on some athletes and you know, sometimes you, you know, you, you question whether or not you care about the result more than they do, you know? And, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of, you know, sleepless nights worrying about, you know, whether or not a guy's a guy or girl is going to be okay with their, with their competition and a lot of stress when the, they're in the competition and, you know, every once in a while, you know, one of them gets injured and you, you feel that emotional pain as well. So yeah, there's, it's, there's definitely a personal cost. What do you think's your Achilles heel as a professional, you know, the thing that you're good at, but it costs you at times. Oh, I would say, you know, uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm an eternal optimist, which maybe, maybe sometimes I'm, uh, you know, I, I always want to see the good or the best in everybody. I want to believe that everybody can do it. Uh, sometimes I want to believe that I'm the guy who's going to find, you know, this, this, 
know, I remember a coach saying to me once very early on about, I was talking about a, it was an NFL football player that had a lot of potential, but just couldn't make it. And this coach reminded me, they said that potential gets you fired. That's something that he said to me as a coach. Remember that potential gets you fired. And he said, there's, you know, there's a, you know, so I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I've been successful in my life for at least my career a few times. Cause I've taken a chance on, on a guy who I believed had potential and, you know, maybe just needed a different approach, but there've been a lot of other cases that have taken a lot of time cost, you know, cost me a lot of effort, a lot of frustration. And you realize that, you know what, there's a reason it didn't work out before. And it wasn't because the coach didn't do the right exercise or the right sets of reps that there's, you know, some inherent issues with that athlete. And that's why it didn't work out. So. Hmm, interesting. This is a part the um, segue in my podcast where I discovered a book a number of years ago that combines numerology with astrology. And I actually got to re- interview the woman who wrote the book. Uh, it's called the day you were born. And so I always read to everybody what their purpose is uh, from the section on them. So you're a Virgo one. And your purpose is to overcome your need for worldly success and control through testing your strength against the best and having faith in a higher power. Your saying is, let man be noble, generous, and good, for this alone distinguishes him from all beings known to us. Virgo ones struggle with their need to shine in the world, their indifference to its rules and norms. These are innovative thinkers who follow their own imagination and instinct and then make the world take notice. Resonate or not with you? Wow, that's <laughs> that's pretty cool. I like that. I like that. I'm not sure about the world domination part. I could, uh, I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, you know, I've known you peripherally and, and we've worked uh, together over the years on projects and bounced into each other and stuff. And um, one of the things that and I said it at the beginning that I always, and it must be sort of that you have discovered in some sense through, uh, through craft and work, your, your, your sense of purpose and that, that I've, I've always found you to be um, sort of, how do I describe it? But you're, you're, you don't pump your tires, but you're, you're just, you're good at what you do. You have a confidence, a quiet confidence in that. And you really focus on trying to do really good work with your athletes and let that be the thing that shines. And I think that's, uh, that's very uh, commendable from my perspective anyways. I really, I appreciate that. Thank you. So tell me the story of BioSteel. You were frustrated with, you know, the world of supplements at the time and you, uh, because there was a lot of, you know, don't do this, don't do that. This could be uh, tainted, et cetera. And you, you just basically said, F it, I'm going to create my own. That's a pretty neat story. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah. It's, uh, this would go back to, you know, I've, I've always sort of been enamored with, sports supplements and things like that. And part of that is being a, you know, being a 15 year old kid going to the gym for the first time and, and aspiring to be a football player and, you know, anything to help you get bigger and stronger. And I, I, it's funny, someone made a comment before about, uh, you know, anyone who's, who's actually has any sort of job, you know, in the nutritional supplement industry or, you know, owns a company that you, you have to have paid your weeder tax. You know, I, I, I paid my tax. I bought all the, you know, mass gainer 10,000s and tiger milk and you know, <laughs> like hot sauce and you know, ultimate orange and you know, I mean, everything else under the sun as a, as a kid going through it. So, 
I feel like I paid, I paid my dues. I paid my tax to get into the game, but um, I did. I was very lucky when I when I finished my undergraduate degree. I started working for the guy by the name of Moro Di Pasquale, who's you know one of the world's foremost experts in nutritional supplements and ergogenic aids, and 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 through him met uh, Dr. Eric Serrano, another another guy who's still a a mentor of mine, very knowledgeable guy. So I was always sort of um, knowledgeable about supplements, enamored with that stuff. But it wasn't until I got that job with the Toronto Maple Leafs where all of a sudden now, you know, Pat Quinn made me the strength and conditioning coach and nutritionist, even though I'm not, you know, a nutritionist or a dietitian. I think they, I, I still to this day think it was just a way to, you know, you know, one, one, one guy to do two jobs at half the price. So it was just me. <laughs> someone, someone told him I knew something about that stuff and that was good enough for him. So um, but yeah, like you said, so I, I didn't realize until I started actually working, I had given, you know, nutritional advice to NHL players in the summer and they would leave to go off in the season, you know, remind them about some tips and things and this and that. But it wasn't until I was actually living in, in, you know, in that team environment, traveling with the team where I realized how really unhealthy that, that environment is for these guys. You know, they, they get on a plane, uh, you know, fly to a different city. They, they, you know, we had, we had players that, you know, they would eat breakfast at, you know, maybe eight o'clock in the morning. And then that was the last thing they would eat all day because they were so anxious and they couldn't eat before a game. Uh, and even if they wanted to eat before a game, the, the actual food at that time, I know, I know, to, I, you know, I talked to coaches in the league today, it's phenomenally better than when you and I were in the league. But at that time, the options weren't very healthy, you know, so at, you know, at, these guys would get to the rink and there's coffee. If you're lucky, there might be bagels or some popcorn or, a, or an, an old power bar that's been sitting there for seven or eight years. And then, you know, they, they would start just, you know, drinking these high sugar sports drinks with artificial colors and artificial flavors and artificial sweeteners. And uh, you'd be lucky if, you know, if caffeine was the only thing this and again, you know, this is back in the day before there was any drug testing as well. You know, if high caffeine beverages uh, were the only thing these guys were taking, then you were doing okay, that you were still doing pretty good. But I, 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 and then at seven, so this is at seven o'clock at night when your circadian rhythms are, are winding down and dictating that we should all be getting ready for sleep and, you know, you know, optimizing our parasympathetic system, not our sympathetic system. These guys are doing the exact opposite. Uh, and then combined with that is the fact that I'm the guy now who's, you know, I'm Dr. Feelgood with the, the, the medical trunk handing out random pills and powders and shakes to all these guys. And, and, it, it never sat right with me. And, you know, at the end of the day, if the star player yells at you and says to, to hand them a, a Gatorade or a Powerade or a Red Bull or whatever, you know, I, I would comply at the time, but it never, it, it, I just never felt right about it, you know, and, and uh, you, you probably experienced this too, but we would have, we had players from Slovakia and from Czech Republic and Russia and Ukraine and Belarus and Sweden and Finland. And they would hand me these containers. I couldn't even read the label. Got like, you know, even if, even if what was on the label was in the product, it wouldn't have mattered because I could, it was in a language I didn't understand. So I thought this is just not a good, from a liability standpoint, this is not good <laughs> from a health standpoint, this is not good. So I started looking into, well, what can I do about it? So I thought, okay, well, one of the things is I, I really feel like I understand why the players are taking these stimulants. I understand why they're doing it, but I really didn't understand like for hockey, the need for that high level of, of, of stimulation. I think a lot of times, cause it became the detriment of control, you know, mm. uh, of dexterity of fine motor control. I think sometimes a lot of these guys were anxious to begin with. This was making them worse. Uh, but I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could do anything about it until I, I had a, I just to say, like you said, just to say, don't do it. That, that wasn't going to work. I needed to provide an alternative. So at the time we were doing 
salivary analysis and urine analysis and blood analysis. We had an omega wave. We were doing, you know, we, we had a, a heart rate monitoring system. We were monitoring every game and every practice at that time. Uh, and we even did a, an in-game lactate study uh, for about a year and a half. So we were compiling a lot of data at this time. This is sort of running in the background. And I started experimenting with, okay, well, if I can, what different ingredients could I use? So I know that they want, I know that they're drinking these sports drinks because they want to stay hydrated, but do they really need all the artificial sweeteners and colors and flavors and sugar? Like, could they be hydrated with just the electrolytes without that stuff? So we started experimenting with that. And then I thought, well, without the sugar, are they going to lose the, the, you know, that perceived energy that they want without the caffeine? Are they going to, are they going to lose that perceived awareness or improved reaction time or focus clarity of mind, all this stuff. So I started with the help of some of these mentors researching, okay, what different things could, could replace that? What amino acids could we use to, to give that sort of a feeling? And, and there's different iterations of the product, but eventually we were able to come up with something that, uh, you know, we used to replace those high sugar and, and high caffeine drinks the guys were consuming before the games. That was sort of the, the genesis of the product. So there never was any aspirations of world domination. There was no aspirations of even selling it to anyone else. So for the first three years, only the Toronto Maple Leafs, they were the only people in the world that used the product. And then uh, a few of the members of the Toronto Raptors started using it. And then a few more of the members on that team. And then, you know, you know, just organically, guys would get traded away and then call and ask, Hey, can I get some of that stuff? Uh, and it just sort of grew from, grew from there. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I, I got, I got fired and started my own business here. I think, you, you know, as well as I do with these hockey players, I, I, they all, they were all using the product, but they weren't paying for it. <laughs> I, I, I mixed it up and handed it to them. And at the end of the day, they knew that it was sort of, you know, they knew that it was my thing that I had created and how passionate I was about it. So, you know, hockey players, they're all pretty good guys. So I, I really didn't know, did they drink it because it was free? Did they drink it because it was convenient? It was right there. They didn't have to go get their own thing. Or did they drink it just because, you know, Matt's a pretty good guy and we know he made it. We don't want to hurt his feelings. So it wasn't until I left the team where I realized that all these players that, you know, were trying it for the first time and had this incredible reaction to it that I realized maybe it was onto something. So. <laughs> It's interesting uh, hearing you tell the story. I'm sure for the listeners, it'll be interesting to hear that. But um, I look back at the period of time that I was in the league, and there are three sort of phenomena that came out of that that uh, sort of I'm, I'm re- I was really not surprised by, but quite uh, taken by how they 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 became a phenomena. There was Crocs, um, Under Armour, and BioSteel. Uh, you know, like when I was in the league, Crocs didn't exist. I remember them dropping the first iteration of those in our dressing room and us kind of testing them. And there were these salmon pink <laughs> and they looked God awful. And I thought they yeah. were the stupidest thing since sliced bread and yet they blew up. And then I always remember Under Armour getting sort of dropped in our dressing room and the guy starting to use it. And then all of a sudden it became this massive phenomenon and then knowing you and what I, I always remember going visiting you in Toronto and you showing me sort of the warehouse and all these cans that you had created <laughs> yeah. your little, your little uh, scientific experiment in the back. Um, humble beginnings for sure. Yeah. But uh, good on you for, what would you say, you know, are for, for the business people listening or the people who are into what are sort of the one, two, three big things that allowed that to go from sort of this boutique, thing that you sort of crafted to something that, you know, you see the LA Lakers using or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, again, like it, it, you know, 
you had mentioned that, and then I just touched on that again. When you say to, you know, if you're looking to replace or compete with any existing product, how are you going to differentiate yourself? You know, if I look at all the, you know, the major players in the, in the sports nutrition industry or specifically in the sports drink market, how could I possibly, you know, differentiate that product or how could you possibly compete against, uh, against a company like that? You know, you, you have to be, in my opinion, there has to be a very clear differentiation and, and you, you have to be better and ideally the best at what you do. And I think if you can provide an alternative to an athlete and say, okay, you know what, this is in, instead of I, here's here's a behavior or a habit or a product that I don't think you should use, but here's the alternative that's going to provide you with the reason. The reason you're using product X is because you want these things to happen. You want to experience this feeling. You want to get this result. I have to be able to provide that and more in, in, a, in a differentiating product. I think that's, you know, you have to be cognizant of that with any business or any product you're going to create. How are you going to differentiate yourself in the marketplace? What's going to be different about you? You know, mm-hmm. and that's no different than if you're a, you know, if you're a hockey player trying to make a hockey team. Okay, well, how are you going to differentiate yourself? Every team has that guy. You know, you you are the most skilled player on the team, or you're the hardest working guy, or you're the hardest hitter, or you're the the funniest guy in the room, or everyone's got to have that thing. What's your thing? You know, so that that was a big thing for us. I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, I, I felt like at least if I could be able to say to the players, I know that this product is safe. I know that this product is healthy. I know that this product works that I can assure you of. So at the end of the day, if you don't like me uh, and that's why you don't use the product, then I can't do anything about that. If you don't like uh, how it tastes or you don't like the name or you don't like the price, those are things. But at the end of the day, at least I feel like it's a very honest sales pitch. It's an honest approach. And I don't think you can ever go wrong with that. And uh, I think from a business standpoint, we we sort of, uh, we lucked out, right time, right place. Uh, I, I think now it's very commonplace when people look at, you know, this, you know, if you go back to 2002, to have a, a sugar-free sports drink was lunacy. That was crazy. I mean, every, if you asked 100 nutritionists and 100 dietitians and 100 strength coaches, 99 or 100 of them would tell you that's a terrible idea. It can't work. You're going to crash. You're going to bonk, you know? Uh, I think now when you, when I look back, you know, then it was crazy and there was a lot of tough days and a lot of uphill battles, but now it's commonplace, you know, mm. things like amino acids back then that was, you know, unheard of or voodoo. And now it's, now it's people are realizing a commonplace. So part of it, I think was, was luck and timing. We were, people were, were in a position where they were looking for something different. They realized that, you know, what they were doing wasn't entirely healthy, but there wasn't really any alternative. So part of, you know, part of it was just, seizing a moment capitalizing capitalizing on it and i think the the last if i was giving business advice to anyone i remember the story is that we uh you know we were selling we had sold uh, a, a year supply to the montreal canadians uh the toronto raptors had bought a year supply as well uh and other than that we had a handful of clients most of them were i think pretty much all of our clients were people that i knew i either trained them or i knew them personally or i knew someone that knew them or i called other strength coaches around the league and said hey you know you know me I, i've never pitch you on anything just try it try you know buy one see what you think but it wasn't until uh it was a hockey night in canada game in the playoffs and they were interviewing gary roberts and they asked him about this pink drink that all the guys would drink what is this pink drink and gary who has no association or affiliation with our company whatsoever just you know told him it's biosteel was made by matt and all the guys are using it and it's great and i remember my business partner john solenza was playing men's league hockey and he got done his game and he was in the dressing room and turned his phone on and he had like 357 
messages on the inbox at biosteel.com. He thought we thought there was a problem with our web server. We were calling our IT guy and we were getting all these. So we had all these orders fall, coming in for products and we didn't have product. Wow. We weren't prepared. So I think that was a moment of, of having the, having the courage to say, okay, you know what? It's now or never. We have to like decide, are we really doing this? Are we going to actually go with this? And we took a, a giant leap of faith and uh, doubled down and, uh, you know, took, uh, took people's, uh, orders ahead of time and they pre-purchased their product which is i still can't believe people did that it's amazing thank you to anyone who actually pre-purchased the product for us and we took a, a huge leap of faith and went for it so that's awesome when you look back um at your personal growth over the last sort of 20 years or so what what do you feel has changed in you as a as a perf- performance professional uh, that you're, you're different than you were 10 15 20 years ago yeah, I think I being in it longer now and seeing a greater number of athletes and different types of athletes and athletes at, you know, all different stages of their career. I have a little more of an appreciation for the importance of of dealing with the health of my clients as human beings, as individuals, not as just as as hockey players and you know, we've uh, lost a a good friend about a month ago and a client of mine, Ray Emery. And I think, uh, you know, it was, you know, a week ago was the anniversary of, of the death of another guy who was a client and became a very good friend, Wade Belak. And I realized the the importance of, of that these people place in guys like us, you know, in many cases you have more contact. Well, in every case, I think you have more contact with most of these players than, than the hockey coaches or the football coaches, or the, you know, the, the sport coaches do. A lot of these guys, that gym becomes a refuge for them. It's a safe place to talk about, you know, their fears and their insecurities. And again, that when they when they come and see you and 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 trust you with their training, they are they're handing over all their fears and their their dreams and their goals to you. And that's a that's a pretty sacred trust that they've placed in us. And uh, safeguarding that and and trying to make sure that you're keeping these guys, you know, healthy as as people. That's something that I've got a, a whole new appreciation for that I, that I I didn't have 20 years ago. Um, from a training standpoint, I'd say the, you know, the importance of, of health. And now there's an obsession with analytics and sports science and this and that. And, uh, you know, man games lost is something that I wasn't even familiar with that term when I started in the NHL. I just wanted everyone to get bigger and faster and stronger and squat more and bench more and jump higher. And uh, I'm realizing now that, you know, if, you know, if you're making $650,000 minimum. If you're the worst player in the league, you're going to make that much money. If I, if I don't help any of my clients get significantly stronger or faster, but I can enable them to play one more season than they would have played otherwise, had they not met me, that's a pretty good return on their investment. So mm-hmm. I think uh, th- those are two things. So I think overall would be the, the importance of health, not just performance and, and not just health from a uh, availability to play standpoint, but health in terms of being a healthy happy human being, not just an athlete. What's one of your highest impact personal uh, performance habits? Um, I I would be a total hypocrite. I I would say uh, rest, relaxation, and sleep, which between June and September I get none of. And between September and June, I do a pretty good job of. So I think that's something that uh, I harp on all of my players about. uh, And I'm a complete hypocrite for three months of the year. And then the other nine months, I try to do a really good job of, of, of making time to read, making time to, to rest, uh, go for walks, you know, try to meditate, uh, things like that. Those are things that, you know, at least between, between September and June, I do a pretty good job. 
Awesome. Last question, man. Um, when the day comes that you perish from the search, which I hope is not for a long time, what do you hope people remember you for? Or I, hope that I, I hope they say that I was a good person. I uh, hope they say that I taught them something. I hope that, you know, my athletes, when they leave here, I hope they teach others. You know, I, I hope that if I show up at an NFL sideline or an NHL arena and no one knows I'm there, I hope that the guys that work with me are are not just, you know, warming up well and training well. I hope that they're good people and I hope that they're leaders and I hope they treat other people with respect and I hope that they've, you know, some of those things that, that you know, I, I at least try to do that, that they carry those on. And, and I really believe that, you know, at the end of the day, there's very few people in the world that, you know, care what I do or say, but the guys that I work with have a really big impact. And that's something I try to, to, you know, stress upon them is that, you know, no, if, you know, if, if Matt Nickel believes in uh, being a good person, that's a lot less important than Tyler Sagan telling kids they should be good people. You know, mm -hmm. if, if, if Matt Nickel believes you should, uh, eat healthy organic food and, and don't eat junk. Well, you know, there might be a few people that care, but if Matt Sundin tells people that a lot more people are going to care. So I, I hope that, you know, some of those messages, uh, at least through, you know, vicariously through those athletes will be carried forward. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, Matt. Uh, we don't get to talk that often, but uh, I've always enjoyed the conversations with you and, uh, I hope uh, you continue to do great things as you have been doing and uh, keep doing great work. And hopefully we'll bounce into each other when, uh, when our paths cross in the future. I would like that a lot. It was great talking to you, Scotty. Thanks, man. All right.